Take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 11, please. Genesis chapter 11. I'm pretty sure that all of us at some point, if we were to look back on our lives as, as believers, we would, along with Wilma, say that our God is a faithful God and that part, a major part of our story is His faithfulness to us in times of difficulty, in times of, of hardship, but also in times of celebration and praise. I read for you a passage of Scripture just a few moments ago, and um, it's one that's probably not a, a strange passage to you. You probably recognized it. Uh, it's where God creates the different languages and He creates the different nations. He sends them out all over um, the earth. Now, I want to I do something kind of fun here for just a moment, Okay. Uh, I, I want to know how many different uh, languages are spoken by the people here in, in this room, okay? So I'm going to call a couple of them out, and if, and if you speak that language, then, then raise your hand, okay? We're going to start with the language that is spoken the most here in the United States, apart from English. Actually, let's start with English. If you speak English, raise your hand. Hey, there we go. There you go. All right. How about Spanish? If you speak Spanish, we've got several people, okay? What about French. Anybody speak French? Wow, that's a lot more than I thought. We could have got a missionary family right here. <laughs> right out. So we do. All right, what about um, Portuguese? I don't know of a few of them here. Okay. What about Pig Latin? <laughs> ah, I got a few of you there. If you don't know what Pig Latin is, go home and Google it. All right, and that'll answer your question. Uh, what am I missing here? German. German, German. right. We've got German. Anybody else? Sign language. Yes, thank you. We do have sign language. Yeah. By the way, I am incredibly thankful for um, Becky Patton, who has uh, ministered in sign language here while they're here on the, on, at home. I'm also thankful for um, the Vegas. Uh, Susie, thank you very much for being willing to sign for your husband every single Sunday morning. Um, we are thankful for, to see that. Uh, good. Anything else that I'm missing? Arabic. Right. Thank you, Johnny. <laughs> there you go. Thank you. Well, folks, uh, listen, language brings with it a sense of belonging, doesn't it? If you speak the language, then you belong. If you don't speak the language, then you don't belong. I, I have been um, overseas in which I did not speak the language and I did not feel like I belonged, especially when I'm trying to communicate with somebody who has no idea what I'm saying and I have no idea what they are saying. So it kind of carries with it the sense of belonging. And the, the idea of multiple languages has its roots all the way back in Genesis chapter 11. That's where we're going to be here in just a few moments. And what we find here in the first nine verses of Genesis chapter 11 is how the nations came to be. How God separated them and he said, you speak this language, you speak this language, you go to this place, you go to this place. Now, I read for you already the, uh, the passage of Scripture that we're going to be in today. So I'm not going to read it again. Uh, I'm going to actually jump right into prayer, and then we are going to move forward from there, okay? Let's pray together. Our Father, I come to you now, and I know without a doubt that you have placed a burden on my heart with something to be communicated today. And Father, I pray that in these moments, uh, you take preeminence. That, Father, we clearly understand your word, and that, Father, we clearly understand then what we are to do with your word. Our Father, we love you. Thank you for the opportunity to worship you today. Thank you for the opportunity we have now to worship you through the teaching, the preaching of your word. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I was looking back over my sermon this morning, and, and I realized um, 
It's a pretty basic sermon. No frills, no, no special bells and whistles. Uh, in fact, I, I firmly believe that God gave me something to bring to you today that is, um, is important for us all to hear. So in these next few moments, let's direct our attention to what he's got to say. As we lead into Genesis chapter 11, I want to go back for just a moment and remind us of where we've been. We're talking about God's story. 2019, we're starting January. In January, we start with Genesis. And um, in, in, in December, we are going to be in the book of Revelation, looking at the big picture of God's story, but not only God's story, but how we fit into God's story. That's the purpose of the videos that you see. It's tying in how has a, per, a certain person's story, how is that tied into God's overall story? We started in, uh, in, in Psalm 119 the first week, uh, talking about God's word, but then we were in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, looking at the creation, right? God looked, at, he created these things just with his voice, and he looked at those things, and he said that it is good. He finished all of creation. He said that it is, it is very good. We got down to Genesis chapter 3, and we see the fall of man. We see sin entering into the world. Uh, forever, the world is changed because of the sin that enters into the world. Genesis chapter 4 is kind of a picture of that and the way that Cain kills his brother Abel. Uh, Genesis chapter 5, it outlines the descendants from Adam all the way up to Noah. In Genesis chapter 6 through 9, we see the account, the biblical account of the flood and how God sends judgment on all the people for their gross, very wicked sin, um, very rampant sin all over the earth. The only people that are spared are Noah, his wife, his sons, their wives, and two of every kind of animal. We get to Genesis chapter 10, and, and what we find, we didn't look at this, but what we find is a list of all the nations that descend from Noah after the flood. But then we jump right in here with, um, with Genesis chapter 11, and uh, I actually want to go back to Genesis 10 here for just like five seconds, okay? Maybe a little more than five seconds, but here we go. Um, in Genesis chapter 10, you're going to find two words that are mentioned three times each, okay? It's the word nation and the word language. What God does is he takes the descendants of Noah and he spreads them out into their own nation and gives them their own languages. Now, we don't find the account of that happening until Genesis chapter 11. So we can kind of look at Genesis chapter 10 as the who goes where chapter. Who is going out to these different nations? While the first part of chapter 11 becomes the what led to them getting there passage of scripture. Now, there are times um, in the book of Genesis in which the author seems to exit the realm of chronological narrative to give more context and more information um, that is important for the reader to know. And that's exactly what he does right here at the beginning of Genesis chapter 11. Uh, it's almost like he comes out of chronological order. He goes back and he says, let me explain how this took place in Genesis chapter 10. So that's what's taking place here. We're in Genesis chapter 11 now, Okay. We look at Genesis chapter 11, the first nine verses, and what you're going to find there is really kind of two mini stories, two small stories within one story. Uh, we're going to call the first one the, the congregation of the people. We're going to call the second one the dispersion of the people. So first of all, the congregation of the people. Look at verse 1, starting in Genesis chapter 11. And I'm going to kind of jump in here, here and there. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. Right? No problem here whatsoever. This is how God created people. This is his design. And at this point, all is well and good. Okay? But then you get to verse 2. As the people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. 
And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen, which is asphalt. It's like a, a, a compound that holds uh, concrete stones together. It's, it's kind of like asphalt. Um, and, and they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, right off the bat, right off the bat, in reading this, we find a couple of great sins of the people. Okay, a couple of great sins right away. These are ways in which they defy the name, they defy the character of God. Number one, they congregate, they congregate rather than disperse. They congregate rather than disperse. And really it goes even deeper than that. They not only fail to disperse, they knowingly fight against dispersing. Now the big problem with this is that since the day that mankind was created, God's will has been that mankind would, would take his glory all over the earth, not stay in one place with it, but multiply, be fruitful, multiply, take his glory to the ends of the earth. His command is for them to have dominions over the, the, the animals and the plants of the earth. Folks, you cannot have dominion over the animals, over the plants of the earth, if you congregate in one place because there are species all over the place in different climates. You can't do that, okay? So that's one little way that they're disobeying God. But really, not only that, but, but the command from God has been clear all along that the people are to be fruitful, to multiply, to take his glory with them wherever they go as people who are created in his image. Genesis chapter 9, so just a couple of chapters before this, Noah has just come off the ark. Okay, he's just come off the ark, and here's what God tells him. He says, you... You, Noah, you, you, your, your descendants, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth, is what it says, and multiply in it. You see, mankind, man and woman, are created imago Dei. That means that they are created in the image of God. And they are the primary means of the glory of God being proclaimed in all the earth. So wherever mankind goes as Imago Dei, as created in the image of God, they take with them, supposed to take with them, the glory of God. So when the people gather into one place, the glory of God that's supposed to be spreading all over the earth is not spreading over the earth. The effect of God's glory is limited because the people are not fulfilling their role in carrying it out. It's not even like the people are just kind of hanging out. No knowledge of what they're supposed to do. No, God has been clear the whole time, and then they are now making an intentional decision to disobey God. Look at the end of verse 4. Okay, and there in your Bibles, the end of verse 4, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. They didn't have the desire, even, to follow the instructions God's given them. It's not like they're acting blindly with no knowledge of what God has said. No, they are deliberately disobeying God and what he has said for them to do. The people congregate rather than disperse. That's not all, okay? In fact, that's not all at all. They also seek to build a name and a monument for themselves. 
Not only do they fail to to disperse all over the earth like God has commanded them to do, but now they are seeking to build a name and a monument for themselves. Look at verses 3 and 4. They said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And, And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. What we find here is nothing short of open rebellion against God open rebellion against God. They're taking the natural ability to build and and, and to work with their hands that God has given them and they are distorting that ability to do something that dishonors and directly disobeys God. Let us build ourselves a city, they said. A city is to be a place of, of comfort that meets their needs. In a city, you can find everything that you need for life, right? You can find sustenance find food, water, medical care. In a city, you can find safety, security. Safety and security from outside forces, whatever that is, the elements, the the wild, whatever it is, you can find security and, and safety in that place. But here's the problem. The comfort itself is not the problem, okay? Comfort is not the problem. The problem is that these people whose desire for personal comfort supersedes their desire to glorify and honor God. That's where comfort becomes a problem. God has commanded one thing, and instead, in their desire for comfort, they build themselves a city. But that's not all they build. What else do they build? Come on, what else do they build? A tower. So they build a city and a tower. Where the city and, its, and, and the comforts that it provides is not necessarily a bad thing, the tower is a very bad thing. I want you to look at their motivation for doing it. Look at there in your Bibles. What is the people's motivation for building the tower? They want to build a name for themselves. It's exactly what it says there. They want to build a name for themselves. Now, think about this with me for just a moment, okay? Oftentimes, people in our culture, they, they seek to build a name for themselves in the area of professional vocation, right? You want to build a name for yourself. You want to stand out from other people for your ability and you want to stand out from other people for your accomplishments. So, so who, in, the, in the vocational world right here, who is it you want to stand out from? You want to stand out from other people, right? You want your boss to look at you and say, hey, great job. Let me give you a promotion, right? You want to stand out for whatever it is. The problem here in Genesis 11 is that there is no other people to stand out from because they've all congregated together, the whole people. Okay, so who is it that they're wanting to stand out from? It's God. No, they're wanting to to stand out from, from, from God. They want to build themselves a name in contrast to the name of God. In essence, what they're saying is we know that God is somebody. Now we want to be somebody. We know that God is high and lifted up. We know that he is glorified. We know that he is great as God. Now we want to be God. That's the reason for the tower. They want to be God. This tower is a monument to themselves. What we find next is kind of the second part of that mini story. Um, The first part was the congregation, right? All of them coming together. Next we see the dispersion into the nations. Verse 5, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Now I want to pause here for just a moment, okay? 
The Bible's very specific here that God comes down to see the city and he's to see the tower. And we know that God um, knows everything that takes place on earth. The theological term for that is that he is omniscient. Okay? He knows everything. He is all-knowing. Now, in God's omniscience, he always knows what's taking place on the earth. And there is nothing that escapes the attention of God. However, there are times that God chooses to insert himself in a particular way into the narrative of the lives of humans. Now, how God does that and the reasoning behind when and where is not for us to know. Um, in fact, it's impossible for us to understand that. But there are times that God chooses to insert himself into man's lives in particular and unique ways. And that's exactly one of the, what he does here. This is one of those times. God already knew what the people were doing, but he chooses to insert himself fully into the situation. Verse 6, and the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. I want to pause and explain verse 6 here for a moment, okay? Is God saying that mankind can do anything that they set their mind to and that they're going to be infinite in their power and in their ability to create? No, that is not what God's saying there. What God is saying is that there would be no end to the evil and the depravity of man if they continued on the path that they were currently on. He's saying that this evil the people have now Right here in Genesis 11, with what they're doing, is a small taste of the evil that will end up coming about if something drastic is not done. So that's where we enter in with verse 7. God does something about it. Verse 7, come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Folks, God chooses to take drastic measures to enact judgment on these people. They're dispersed all over the earth. Family member is separated from family member. Friends no longer have any way to communicate with their friends. People who once worked well together can no longer do so because they can't understand what the other person is saying. One man asks for a brick and the other guy thinks he's asking for a taco. That was a freebie thrown out there for you, right? Folks, for the first time, the people are limited by language and they're broken up in groups to be dispersed all over the earth. Can you imagine what that would have been like? Everything that they had known is now changed. The people were one big happy family, literally, the descendants of Noah. And they would have appreciated each other's company. They were rejecting God and they were in sin, but they were probably happy together in doing so. And in the blink of an eye, the family separated, never to see each other again. Now, as I read through those verses this week, I wrote down two um, heartbreaking realities that I found from these verses. Okay, here's the first one. And that is that we always have a choice between judgment and obedience. Mankind in general always has a choice between judgment and obedience. Always. Now God's very clear how we are to obey him. For us today, um, we're living in what's called the church age. 
God's command is is clear that mankind as a whole is to acknowledge that salvation can only be found in Jesus, to repent of their sin and surrender their lives to following only Jesus, okay? When we follow Jesus, it's expected that we live life in such a way that we are progressively becoming more and more like Jesus. We live our lives in the way that Jesus lived his life. That means that we daily make decisions that obey God and what his word has to say, Right? That's, that's one of the ways that we obey God. If at any point we choose not to obey God, then it's the same thing as choosing God's judgment. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at the story of Noah and how God chose to judge all mankind because of their sin and the rejection of him. Right? God is a just God. His standard is holiness and obedience to him. And when people do not meet that standard, God's character does not allow him to overlook their sin. There has to be judgment of some kind. The people here in Genesis chapter 11 who chose to spread their own glory and their own fame over God's glory and his fame chose by default judgment from God. We've got the same choice today. Very same choice. We can choose to obey God and do what he has said or we can choose his judgment for our sin. That's our choice. Over and over again, I hear from people, hear about people Talk with people who think that God is somehow okay with how they live in any way they want to live, no matter what that is. And folks, that is simply not the case. The reality is that we're all born sinners who are under the wrath of a good and perfect yet just and righteous God. And without his grace and mercy and offering his son to pay the penalty for our sin, we would all live in eternal judgment for disobedience to him. We, like the people of Babel, have a choice to make. Are we going to obey God or are we going to choose judgment? Here's the second point that I wrote down this week, uh, the reality. That is that sin will only lead to rotting towers of disappointment. Sin will only lead to rotting towers of disappointment. Now, two things could have happened uh, to that city and to the tower when, when God dispersed the people, right? He could have, he could have torn that tower down. Um, and we're not talking about a, a, a couple of four-by-fours stuck in the ground with two-by-fours, you know, kind of building a rickety tower. Um, no, we're talking about something that is massive. In fact, historians tell us that it was probably acres upon acres of, of property that it was built up in maybe something like a pyramid shape. God could have torn that thing down, but all we find in God's word is that the people just leave it. Okay, there's no evidence of God tearing it down. And as they would have left that tower, they would have looked back and all they would have seen is a great big tower of disappointment. We're talking years at this point of them pouring themselves into this thing, to building it up. Their hopes, their dreams, their, their plans for significance in life is, is, is tied up in that tower. And now as they're going away, God's sending them away, they look back and they see nothing but a great big tower of disappointment. Because what they find is that what they thought they could put their hope in and thought they could put their significance in was nothing at all. Not a thing. And it is simply there to rot Folks, that is exactly what sin does in our lives. We build it up and we build it up and we build it up. But in the end, it will lead to nothing at all except destruction. 
In fact, as I think about um, the idea of a, um, and I put this together, it's called the blueprint of a tower. The blueprint of a tower. Talking about a tower of sin in our lives. Here's what a tower would look like, okay? As we build this tower of sin in our lives, here's, here's what it would look like, okay? First of all, in building a tower of sin in your life, there is a seeking of comfort. Just like the people there, there's a seeking of comfort. And you're going to want to write these things down, okay? Come back to them later. Now, I want you to hear me on something. Just like I said before, there is nothing wrong with seeking comfort. In fact, it's natural for us to seek comfort. The problem is that comfort can easy, easily take the place of the calling of God. God has called you to holiness and, if, and, and to follow him. And even though you might still be following his calling, oftentimes you're also accompanying that calling with an overt desire for comfort. That comfort rarely fits with the calling of God. Let me say that again. Comfort rarely fits with the calling of God. I'll tell you some other things that do fit with the calling of God. There's significance, there's, there's joy, there's satisfaction, there's happiness, but there is rarely comfort with the calling of God. In fact, Jesus said that any man that would follow me needs to do three things, right? He needs to take up his cross, he needs to deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And that sure doesn't sound like anything that's comfortable to me. Seeking comfort is always the start of building a tower of sin in my life. But then next, there comes an intense desire for self-preservation. An intense desire for self-preservation. Not only do I want to be comfortable, but I want to do everything that I can to make sure that I am preserved. My life is preserved. My health is preserved. My finances are preserved. My family is preserved. And at the heart of this desire to make sure, our, at the heart of all of this, is the desire to make sure that our comfort is preserved. Don't mess with my comfort. That's what people say. Don't mess with what I have set aside as a comfort over here. This is the point where we start to move completely away from the calling that God has on us for personal holiness and to follow him in whatever it is that he's called us to do. We move away from that. Now we are starting to sacrifice God's calling for something altogether different. We want to preserve our comfort and we choose that self-preservation over what God has for us. This is where the road starts turning nasty, okay? Because that desire for self-preservation soon, soon turns into a condition of compromise. A condition of compromise. So not only have we sought comfort, we had this overwhelming desire for self-preservation, but now we're in a condition of compromise. Our bodies and our minds are put in a position to which, you know, it wouldn't be that big a deal to compromise what we know to be right. It wouldn't be that big a deal at all to ignore what God has said. It wouldn't be that big a deal to tell this little lie over here. It wouldn't be that big a deal to take that first look at pornography and then take a second and then go look for more. In this condition of compromise, our bodies and our minds are so compromised by our desire for comfort and self-preservation that at that point, we're not looking for God anymore. We're not looking for holiness anymore. We're looking for what we want. We haven't stored up God's word in our minds and our hearts. So when that, when that temptation comes, there is no way to fight, to put up a defense, to fight against it. 
The condition for compromise is there and we give in to it. We compromise ourselves. We compromise what God has called us to. It's not long after being in the the condition of compromise that we believe the dirty lie of accomplishment. The dirty lie of accomplishment. This is the point where we look around and we think, you know what? I didn't need God to accomplish this. I've done this on my own and it's pretty incredible. And it's a lie of accomplishment because at its core, it is no accomplishment at all. It's a monument to glory of a man or woman who will only be on this earth for a short time. And all along, God is looking on the puny life that you have built and he's screaming out that you chose second best when he had the best right there all along. It's the best that you could ever hope for and it's available to you. This lie of accomplishment makes you think that you are somebody. But what you don't realize is that you have given up the greatest opportunity you could ever have to actually be who you were created to be. And then the last stage of this tower that you've built for yourself is inevitable. What you find last is the reality of destruction. It's the reality of destruction. You had the seeking of comfort, right? You had the desire for self-preservation. You had the condition for compromise. You had the lie of accomplishment. And then last, you will have the reality of destruction. God is not going to share his glory with anyone. Your obedience, or excuse me, your disobedience to him is going to result in righteous judgment on you. And there's going to come a time in which you look on the tower that you have built and you spent so much time creating and you're going to have a sense of disappointment because what you thought was going to give you significance and what you thought was going to give you life and what you thought was going to give you hope in this world is going to do nothing but stand there and rot because it means nothing. What started out as innocence, if not unchecked, is going to lead to judgment and destruction. But folks, listen to me. Listen to me. I talk so much here. I have talked for so long now about the judgment of God and how God's judgment does come on sin. And that is absolutely very true. But never get blinders on your eyes so much that you only see the judgment of God. Because what comes next is nothing short of beautiful where we oftentimes just see a God of judgment, there is a whole other side of God that we sometimes completely miss. You see, God is a God of judgment, but he is also a God of redemption. Take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. In this story of the confusing of languages, In Genesis chapter 11 that shows God's judgment, I'm going to show you another story of confusing languages that shows the beauty and the splendor of God's redemption. What we're going to find here is that God's confusion of languages comes full circle in Acts chapter 2. I want to set this up for us, okay? Um, Jesus has already died. He's been buried. He's risen from the dead. He spent time here on earth. He's ascended back into heaven. This is the day of Pentecost here in Acts chapter 2 when Jesus' followers are all gathered together. They're praying and the Holy Spirit comes down and he indwells them. Immediately, God does something miraculous in them. They've got the ability to speak in languages that are not their own language. Now, there's two interesting things here that should be noted before we read this passage, okay? First interesting thing, that these are simple, uneducated men who are now speaking different languages. They should not be able to. They had never sat under a tutor and this tutor explained to them this language or taught them this language. That had never happened. All right? It is God who's allowing this to take place. Second interesting thing, 
This is the day of Pentecost. Okay, it's a day in which thousands, tens of thousands have descended upon the city of Jerusalem and they're speaking in different languages. They're coming from all nations, tribes, and tongues. They're all here in Jerusalem. And this is where God chooses to work. So what does the Holy Spirit do? Okay, he, he leads these disciples to go out and speak those languages to tell the people about the risen Savior. You're in Acts chapter 2, look at verse 4. We'll start reading there. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to, te- to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and, and Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and, and, and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? Wow! Talk about a complete reversal of the Tower of Babel. This is incredible, folks. The Tower of Babel was God's judgment for sin. The day of Pentecost was God's redemption for mankind. The Tower of Babel was God's righteous judgment on a people who thought themselves God. The day of Pentecost was the proclamation that God alone is supreme. The Tower of Babel, people thought that they could provide for themselves eternal life by becoming like God. The day of Pentecost shows us that God alone has power over sin and the grave and that he resurrected his son Jesus and that the people could find forgiveness for their sin through Jesus alone, no matter how great the sin was. At the Tower of Babel, God separates mankind using languages as judgment for sin. At the day of Pentecost, God brings together people of all nations, all tribes, all tongues to experience the beauty of his redemptive plan in motion. God's purpose for mankind has been the same since the dawn of creation. We are to take his glory and spread it over all the earth. That's what he wanted for the people in Genesis chapter 11. That's what he wanted for the people in in Acts chapter 2. That's what he wants for us today, to take his glory and spread it out. If you are a believer here today, there was a time in which you were under the righteous wrath of God. If you're not a believer here today, you're not a follower of Jesus, then currently you are under the righteous wrath of God. But the good news is that Jesus, that God reached down into the depths of our depravity and he rescued us when we desperately needed rescuing. He rescued us with a purpose of proclaiming his excellent glory over all the earth. Listen, he cannot abide our sin but he still loves us with an everlasting love. He always has, and he always will. Everywhere we go, we are to shout that our God is a redemptive God who loves us. We are to sing his praises all the days of our lives for what he's done. Folks, this morning, we're not going to end our service in an elaborate way. I'm not going to end with prayer, and then we sing a song. We're going to end it by together. 
as God's people singing together the doxology. And then we're going to end our service. Because our God alone is worthy of all the praise and the glory and the honor that he is due. Let's give it to him. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Salem, you are sent to go proclaim the glory of God everywhere you go. You are sent.